0: Look familiar. So, it wasn't destroyed? Actually, it was. This is a backup. Earth Mark II. So you, you made the Earth? <laughs> Not me alone, but I, I, I did my part. Ever heard of a place, I think it's called
1: Norway.
0: That was one of mine. I, I got an award for it. That's planet designer Slarty Bartfast from Douglas Adams' science fiction comedy Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. For those of you who don't know it, the story opens with the destruction of the Earth, not by climate change, but to make way for a hyperspace bypass. In the book, and the radio series, and the TV series, and the film, which I grabbed this sound from, we learn that a duplicate Earth is in the works. Something similar actually does happen, when a bypass impacts rivers or the habitat of endangered species here in the United States.
1: there There's an evolution in the way we approach the environment in that we used to think of it as this special place that we just step back from and leave alone and as long as we leave it alone it's going to be fine.
0: Tim Mail is an environmental scientist who spent over a decade working with environmental NGOs like the Environmental Defense Fund and Defenders of Wildlife before running for office in the city of Tacoma Park, Maryland. While serving as a councilman there, he was tapped by the Obama administration to act as Associate Director of Conservation for the Council on Environmental Quality, or CEQ, which is tasked with making sure various policies are properly aligned.
1: And since the 60s and 70s, there's been this massive growth in restoration of the environment.
0: As a scientist, Male became an expert in bringing degraded landscapes back to life. And as a councilman, he got to see how it's paid for at the local level. While in the White House, he got to see how policies interact across the country.
1: And what we've learned through that work is that we can fix things, we can repair things, we can change nutrient inputs or outputs, we can change plant communities, we can change the species that live there. And we've gotten good, particularly the private sector has gotten good at delivering the same kind of project over and over and over again. So
0: if you need to restore a stream or a river bank, the city tries to do it themselves. They've never done that before. They're going to have to learn something. Whereas you get some guy who all he does is restore rivers. You can pay him to come in. You know, he's done it a million times
1: and he can knock it out pretty quick is, is what you're saying, right? Or am I- That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and the, the company can not only do it better, but can do it faster.
0: Faster means cheaper, because time is money. And as more and more people join the restoration economy, it's easier and easier to see what works, what doesn't, and why.
1: So whereas everything used to be customized, today we can start building stuff using the same model, just like the kind of commodities you buy. You buy a Dell laptop. Uh, You don't order a customized laptop. You buy a Dell laptop from the catalog. We're getting to the point where we can start producing uh, environmental outcomes the same way. The same thing every time, same output. And think of them as goods instead of as services. And you think about um, you know, state or federal laws, it's almost at the point where somebody should be able to develop a shopping list of the kinds of things they want, and they should be able to put out uh, requests for proposals to just buy the things on that shopping list. When the private sector or nonprofits can deliver those items, they <laughs> get paid for it.
0: That's actually happening now, and has been for decades across the United States, which is home to a $25 billion restoration economy, and in other countries as well. It's happening in part because of laws that require people who break nature to fix it, but also because more and more people are realizing that healthy ecosystems make all of our lives better. But the critical question in all of these things is, how do you pay for it? It's a question that mail grappled with in government, and it's one he's continuing to explore as head of the Environmental Policy Innovation Center, which is part of the Sand County Foundation. Last year, Mail published a report called Nature, Paid on Delivery, which looks at a relatively new development. Specifically, he looks at how the U.S. states of Louisiana, Maryland, California, and Nevada are restoring large swaths of degraded land. But, and here's the new bit, they're doing it without any taxpayer money being paid out, until the companies doing the work deliver on specific milestones. It's called Pay for Success, and I caught up to him last year at a coffee shop in Maryland after the Ecological Restoration Business Association's second annual policy conference in Washington, D.C. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate
1: through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene.
0: We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face, we should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms or fields and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we hear how four U.S. states— are using a pay-for-success model to restore degraded lands. It's a practice that began in the United Kingdom back in 2010 and came to the United States in 2012. Today, more than 50 such projects are in development, and Tim Mayle has been watching them progress from the start. I interviewed him last year after reading his report, Nature Paid on Delivery. And although a few references are a tad dated, the big issues are still as relevant as ever.
1: I currently serve as executive director of the Environmental Policy Innovation Center. Uh, but previously, I worked at the White House Council on Environmental Quality, where I was the lead on many conservation issues. And then I also was a city councilman, an elected city councilman. So I was simultaneously working at the White House on, you know, very top, high-level policies and at the very, very bottom of government in a city or a town of 17,000 people trying to deliver services. And that, you know, really shows you how do you, how do you get stuff done, what, how do you make things happen.
0: This term uh, payments for success is that a new is that a new term is that your term or it been
1: is it uh, yeah pay for success is not my term uh, it's a term that uh, really um, started being used about ten years ago a little less than ten years ago uh, Great Britain Israel and the United States are probably the three countries with the the strongest leadership in it and pay for success really got its start in social policy so how do you help people who get out of prison stay out of prison recidivism. How do you help children uh, have the best possible educational performance in preschool and then and then through grade school, and how do you help people uh, get jobs? Uh, for example, first generation immigrants. You mentioned schools
0: and social programs, and I should point out that pay for success has proven controversial in those realms, mostly because there's a lot of debate around which outcomes to measure, or about oversimplification, but also because some people see pay for success as a step towards privatization of schools or social services. Ecological restoration is different. It's really more like public works, where governments already contract out for projects and where, at the very least, metrics are easier to agree on and to measure.
1: So in the social policy space in the United States, there are something like 40 or 50 uh, projects by counties, by cities, by states, um, where they're focused on intervening in a way where a uh, government agency identifies what it is that they want. What's the outcome that they want to see? They work with an intermediary. Uh, it could be a nonprofit, uh, it could be a for-profit, uh, to help really identify the specific things that could be achieved in two or five or ten years. And then that intermediary develops a financing structure to bring in money and partners to deliver those outcomes. And the government, local or, sh- local or state government, pays back the intermediary when they deliver the outcomes. And the
0: challenge though is is I guess quantifying them in a way that's tr- trustworthy, right? I mean that's
1: That's yeah. right. One of the issues that's bedeviled conservation and social policy for a long time is proving that something has changed and proving why it's changed. In the space of conservation, we very much let the perfect become the enemy of the good. We talk about this this, you know, need to prove causality and need to precisely measure. But we don't talk about what is the status quo right now where we don't try to measure at all. We just give out a grant to some organization and they report back to government or whomever that gave the grant on what that they spent the money, but not that they achieved any outcomes at all. So by just identifying some outcomes that uh, might be possible to measure um, and measuring those outcomes and making payments associated with those outcomes and then learning over time how to do a better job of delivering the outcomes and how to define the outcomes, it is it is a wild step beyond the status quo, and there's a great Winston Churchill quote that talks about democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Right. Pay for success is the worst way to deliver uh, a, <laughs> uh, a government program except for all the others, which don't focus on outcomes at all. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. That, I mean, when you when you say
1: causality, would that be what we would call in the carbon space additionality? Uh, no. When it, what I mean by causality is uh, there's a stream that's carrying sediment to Chesapeake Bay uh and it has no trees planted along its its stream banks someone goes in and plants trees and a year later the stream is delivering less sediment to Chesapeake Bay was it because of the trees or was it because it rained less that's an example of not knowing what whether the trees were the cause of the change. If we're going to pay for something. We want to make sure that it absolutely delivered it and didn't just get lucky. And yeah, that's right. And it comes up all the time. I mean, the the, the concept of ecosystem services. Uh, we've been talking about ecosystem services for twenty twenty five years now, um, and we've let measurement of the service really uh, be a huge barrier to actually letting programs. Uh, start to work with and innovate uh, in using an ecosystem service mindset. The the basic concept in Pay for Success is that we're breaking down the kinds of uh, benefits you can get from the environment into individual commodities. It's nitrogen, it's phosphorus, it's more of a wildlife species, Um, it's less carbon. We're breaking it down into specific commodities and then saying, well, let's just try to get this in a measurable way, in a way that we can accept uh, is, a, is an indicator so what's of change. My indicator in three or five of five years and eventually use that as the basis it will be the plan. number
0: of people I'm reaching. But I first need to crank out more and better episodes. I'm doing these on my own time so far, which is why the episodes come so infrequently. But if you want more and better episodes, you can help me deliver them by giving me a five star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. That's important because the more reviews I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. And if you really like what you hear, you can become a patron for as little as $1 per episode at bionic-planet.com or at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet.
1: If you think about what motivates people in government, one of the most significant ones is risk avoidance. So you don't wanna be uh, called to somebody's office and told that your program failed. That means there's a barrier to innovation in government because innovation, by definition, has a higher risk. And so you, using a pay for success approach, you're allowing people in a government agency to try something new, to allow uh, third parties to try new things, some of whom will fail and not cost the government a dime, some of whom will succeed and get paid for it government can then learn from those approaches and figure out how to bring them back into government to make that the routine and how they deliver, you know, a, a government service.
0: Gotcha. And you also talk about uh how it brings upfront financing because a lot of these projects they they need money up front and in the old days I guess a government would float a bond. And now what you're what you're doing is now what you're 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 proposing is that uh, impact investors could come in and pay a company to Implement one of these payments for success programs, and then if they succeed, the government pays them on the back end. So even there, the government is only paying if the results are there. The risk is being borne by the impact investor, who, if
1: if it doesn't work, he loses. If it does work, he he makes money on the back end. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's a lot of uh, capital uh, all around the world right now that's seeking a, uh, an environmental or a social good at the same time that they're trying to create a return on investment. This approach allows, um, through a social impact bond or through the creation of a fund run by a, you know, a single company, an investment firm, it allows private investment to come in and pay for that, uh, that delivery uh, through a fundraise. The, there are a couple of differences. Sometimes these programs can be used just simply in the routine operation of government. A, let's say a government agency has $10 million to spend on something every year, they can take a portion of that money and choose to spend it this way it's a very predictable amount. It might be a small amount, but they can basically use some of it to innovate. That's one of the things that's happening in Maryland. Maryland has a new law that allows them to, um, to buy quantities of, of nitrogen and phosphorus and sediment reduction into Chesapeake Bay. And so they're, they're using an existing program, fairly small, but the idea is that the amount of money is, is somewhat repeatable year after year after year. They're creating a, a stable marketplace for delivery of these goods. And when you talk about nitrogen, phosphorus, this is a uh, fertilizer
0: that's running off of farms and going into the Chesapeake Bay, right? That's ju- usually what it is, or is uh,
1: it? It's a mix of runoff from land, typically farmland. Mm-hmm. Nitrogen and phosphorus come from that source, but it also comes from all the people that live in the Chesapeake Bay, and uh, and so you get nitrogen and phosphorus runoff from human waste. Mm-hmm. So you have both suburban and urban, and then you have a, a, a rural uh, component to that runoff. Okay, And in Maryland, you looked at two programs. One was clean water and the other one was infrastructure. Uh, maybe you could just talk a bit about
0: how this Maryland program works since you brought that up already.
1: Yeah, so uh, Maryland, uh, the legislature, uh, with at the request of the governor, passed a new law that allows them to use some of the existing funding they have that goes to the Chesapeake Bay, that goes to clean up the Chesapeake Bay, to put out uh, requests for proposals for, for private or nonprofit sector or local government. To deliver quantities of nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment, they're going to start buying, you know, these units. It's the same way we buy toilet papers or pencils, right? They're just going to buy at a certain price a ton of nitrogen or a ton of phosphorus.
0: And what you really mean is a ton removed from the
1: water. Yes, a ton removed. And from how the water. would how would a company go
0: about delivering that? What practices would they undertake? So, uh,
1: in in uh, Maryland and the Chesapeake Bay states, really since the Clinton administration, there's been approved uh, accounting systems that. Uh, Environmental Protection Agency, state government uh, have defined for the kinds of quantities or outcomes you get from certain practices. So companies, many of whom already operate in the Chesapeake Bay region, know how to plant trees and a buffer along a stream, know how to plant filter strips, know how to build uh, bioretention basins in suburban areas to capture stormwater. They know how to do all those things. And uh, and there's an established accounting system to measure the outcome associated with that. So that's those are the kind of activities that would start happening. Companies would look for cost effective ways they could find land uh, or projects to uh, to to put into the queue for this funding. So it's green infrastructure, right? Yeah. Yeah. And let me just uh, just describe the other Maryland program. Uh, in Maryland, um, the State Department of Transportation also did something uh, that was pretty innovative. Um, because they know they're going to be building roads, that's what you do when you're Department of Transportation. They either need to be fixed, expanded, or, or, or put in new roads. Uh, they put out an RFP to get a certain quantity of stream benefits uh, under the Clean Water Act. Impacts to streams, rivers, and wetlands are all regulated. And you have to try to get to a no net loss uh state of your uh, in terms of your impacts, State DOT knows they're going to need a certain supply of of credits, of benefit to streams to offset the impacts they're going to cause. They put out a, a a request for proposals to get 100,000 linear feet of stream delivered back to them that they can use to offset future projects. So they're basically creating uh, an asset that they can hold on to uh, in advance, way in advance. The conservation happens in advance and the delivery to the agency happens in advance to deal with future projects. They're making the environmental component of transportation planning just a boring routine thing that they've already planned for in advance. And that's, that's, the, that's the definition of, of a really good environmental program, is that an agency that has to interact with it or private sector interacting with it Knows exactly what to do to satisfy their obligations, and it just becomes a routine part of the of the business. And that's one of the exciting things about what uh, Maryland's doing in this space, because every other Department of Transportation in the entire country they take the exact same approach. Yeah, I just wanted to go
0: into what you wrote here just to flesh that out a bit. Sixty-five percent of the payments come after the results are you known, so there will there'll be some upfront up financing, which makes sense. They've got a trust fund what was it called? The, the Chesapeake and Atlantic Trust Fund mm-hmm. that already is, is kind of paying for these reductions. And now the idea is to go into and in, to use a uh, private company called Ecosystem Investment Partners. Is that the? Yep. Ecosystem Investment Partners. Yep. Okay. Quick disclosure. One of the managing partners at Ecosystem Investment Partners is Adam Davis, he also co-founded Ecosystem Marketplace, which is where I work full-time. You had a price in here where it says uh, this company it looks like it's able to deliver these, these uh, I call them emission reductions because I think of carbon, but is that, do you use that term? Pollution reductions. Pollution, okay. Yeah. Um, the company can deliver it at $800 per pound, whereas the uh, Maryland Department of Natural Resources usually pays about
1: $2,000 propound in traditional projects what what is what is the company doing differently yeah i mean it, it, if you think about it it's a company that is specializing in delivering this kind of project they do it over and over and over again in the example of uh, ecosystem investment partners or other companies like res or westervelt they do it they have a lot of experience and they've grown these are significant companies that have you know 100 200 300 million dollars worth of assets they put in these projects this is what they do they're specialists And so, whereas a government agency has all the paperwork and bureaucracy they have to deal with, and they're doing a million other things, that it really allows them to focus on how do we deliver this efficiently. And and one of the most important pieces in a lot of the the markets that exist in the United States for this work is that land protection, permanent land protection through an easement or title acquisition, is a big part of many of the projects. Well, that's basically real estate. So you need to have real estate lawyers and, and real estate experts on staff uh, that's also something that the private sector is generally much more efficient at than, uh, than the public sector. So that's that's a that's a huge part of the efficiency is delivered because they're better at finding cheaper real estate uh, that where you can deliver an environmental bang for the buck, as opposed to a, a government which has a lot of uh, procedures they have to go through that make it harder to discover to discover the sort of best properties to do work. Right. Okay. So this goes, it
0: just goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning. It's they 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 do it they do it over and over again.
1: They have a lot of practice.
0: If I want to go up and kick a football, and I haven't kicked a football in 20 years, it's going to dribble off to the side, whereas, yeah, okay. We're all better when we specialize, and I'd like to improve this show by focusing exclusively on writing and presenting, which is what I've gotten good at, and getting a real sound designer and producer to make it sound right as well as a second set of eyes for my copy. If you like the content and the topics I'm covering and want more and better episodes, then you can help me deliver them by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet, that's all one word, bionicplanet, patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash bionic planet or conversely you can help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher namely access me through the radio public app that's radio public like public radio but backwards they automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show to the end and that adds up Now back to my interview with Tim Mayle, who's going to be describing one of the weirdest landscapes that I know of in the United States. I only know about it because my colleague, Kelly Hamrick, visited the region and wrote about it in a piece on Ecosystem Marketplace called Can California Tap Carbon Markets to Save Its Delta and Its Drinking Water? It's a great piece, and I wanted to read you just the opening sentences. Fifty miles inland from San Francisco, cows are grazing on lush grass, and small purple flowers seem to pop out of every bush. In the distance, a sailboat glides across the treetops, and it's not a mirage. It's because I'm looking up. This idyllic farmland is 20 feet below sea level, on a sinking island called Twitchell, one of many in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, where the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers converge. This region provides most of California's drinking water, but the marshes have mostly been drained, and colossal earthen dikes now loom over lowland farms, guiding massive amounts of water towards the coast in man-made streams that crest above the roofs of farms that now cover most of the Delta's 738,000 acres. Farming here is a double-edged sword. As farmers churn up the peat soil to dry it for planting, The carbon in it reacts with oxygen in the air to form the greenhouse gas carbon dioxide, which is soon gone with the wind, along with the soil. Because soil keeps disappearing, farmers keep digging it up, and the islands keep sinking, threatening both their own livelihoods and the entire state's drinking water if those levees ever give way on a big scale. They do, in fact, fail occasionally. If you want to read the whole article, Google, can California tap carbon markets to save its delta and its drinking water? Or check out the show notes for today's show on Bionic-Planet.com, where you'll find a link to the piece. Now back to Tim Mail.
1: In California, you have, you have an incredible number of people. You have an amazing part of the Amer- America's economy. And you have these really pressing uh, natural resource and water challenges. Um, in the Bay Delta of California, it's a former basically river delta, the tidal, partly tidal, uh, estuary where a bunch of rig- rivers fit together. Most of that river delta is farmed, and most of it is subsided to the point where the land is below sea level, and it's protected by dikes or levees. Um, at the same time, they have a pile of endangered species there, and a need to bring water, fresh water, to farms and cities throughout California, where it gets piped or moved through that delta. And California has struggled for decades to figure out how to fix or restore some of those areas back to the wetland condition that they were in before to create endangered species benefits to offset the, either the water quality impacts or the uh, endangered species effects of other, other parts of their system. And so um, doing those, pro- those kinds of restoration projects are hard. It's they're owned by private landowners. Uh, taking out one levy obviously has an effect on other people. Uh, and there's a certain scale to the agricultural economy that if you take away too many projects, you you impact it. It's also really hard to figure out land prices, right? The price of of a flat piece of land next to a city in a city is a lot easier to predict and 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 for somebody to develop a fair pricing model for than these sort of strange properties below sea level in the delta that produce various agricultural products. And so in California, they they have started partly because Governor Brown set. You know, a very ambitious target of restoring—I think it's 30,000 acres of wetlands in a short period of time—and uh, they're already way behind. They started trying to figure out if they could work with the private sector to have the private sector deliver a protected piece of property that is fully restored to uh, to a set of wetland conditions. And they did their first one of those a couple years ago. Uh, it took a lot of work for them to get through the process because California previously would contract for the design of a project then contract for the acquisition of the land and then contract for the delivery of restoration so three two or three contracts each of which would go through a public bidding process Um, each of those create enormous costs they slow down projects uh, The project can fail or, or or get off track at any point in the process so they've they've now worked with the private sector to start delivering uh, some small projects that are focused on wetland restoration, where the private sector delivers a permanently protected property and transfers the title to the state. So the state gets land at whatever you know, price the, the, the bid came through on, and then the companies uh, carry out the restoration. Uh, and they've taken all the burden of that of the restoration the planning and permitting associated with that restoration and they're also taking I, guess, I assume a lot of the risk right the, yeah the they take is. all the risk that the project will succeed um, even even finding the property you know finding the property and securing a a, a deal with the landowner mm-hmm. uh, all of that risk the private sector is taking from government and with an incentive to do it fast right but so the, the longer that a company parks its assets in a project without getting paid back the more costly it is for them so they really try to get stuff done mm-hmm. fast what happens
0: if they do it on the cheap instead of doing it efficiently, and the whole thing falls apart in a couple
1: of years. There's there's a couple of risks. One, if the government hasn't paid for it, taxpayers uh, not, hasn't lost anything, but we haven't gained anything. We haven't gained the restoration. Um, uh, if they paid some of the money, because the payments are often tiered to different performance levels as a project goes through over you know five years or ten years, uh, if we paid some of the money, then there's there is risk to, to taxpayer dollars. Uh, in california 's case basically they built in insurance they use insurance just as you and I use insurance for fire or flood on our houses they uh, require insurance that um, if the company's projects fail and the state has already put money into the project state gets paid back from the insurer uh, and that's a that's a that's a just a, a risk management strategy which we all use and they 've just put it to, put it to use in
0: environmental restoration and then the, and the insurers I assume do a certain amount of checking up themselves to make sure that they're not going to get stuck. I I sure hope so. (laughs) The next one is one that I really hope to revisit, uh, which is Louisiana. Um, And uh, because yesterday we had, it was a Garrett Garrett Graves, Congressman Garrett Graves Graves. described Louisiana as uh, the canary in the coal mine for all of these these kind of issues because they're losing a football field a day uh, or a football field an hour. Um, Although it was later corrected, I think they've gotten it down to a football field every 100 minutes, which is still something that needs to be improved on. Louisiana is really fascinating uh, because of this new law that they passed through. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about this and and how you see it playing out in the future. Yeah,
1: so so the the broad challenge for Louisiana is that their coast uh, is subsiding uh, because it used to be propped up by mud flowing down the Mississippi River. And then climate change and sea level rise uh, are swallowing land as well. Um, And the loss of that coast directly impacts all the communities that are found along the coast, but also further inland impacts places like New Orleans, which no longer have uh, coastal marshes and ecosystems that provide a uh, defense from storm surge. So in Louisiana, they have an ambitious goal of spending $50 billion, not all of which they have access to right now, to carry out coastal restoration. It's the biggest climate resilience strategy in the country. Uh, it's playing out without uh, any obvious sort of partisan rancor in a deep red part of the country they're focused on resilience and they're focused on green infrastructure these marshes as opposed to sea walls and you know giant levees as a way to defend uh... uh louisiana's land area um, louisiana the governor and the legislature passed a law that allows them to take what's called a pay for success approach we've already talked about that a little bit to uh... to take bids on projects from private companies to do coastal restoration Louisiana knows through this master plan generally where they want to put projects—projects projects that restore marsh and through through delivery of sediment—they um, uh, generally know where those are. They call it the green blob map. It's just so these general areas that uh, all along Louisiana's coast, uh, and so they're they're in the process now of putting in place the regulations that will allow them to start taking bids. For private companies to deliver big restoration projects—five hundred acre, thousand acre restoration projects—putting mm-hmm. marshes back in places they've been lost along the coast.
0: And this was kind of an evolution towards this. Uh, Congressman Graves had mentioned that uh, that they initially started to allow competition among agencies, and realized that just allowing that competition.
1: Allows for better solutions to come in, right? There was. Uh, did you want to talk about that, or is that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Congressman Graves uh, is uh, is a really an interesting person to have in Congress because he has a previous life as the administrator of uh, what's called the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority in Louisiana, a state agency in charge of this work. Uh, so it's pretty rare that you have somebody with that kind of uh, uh, previous leadership experience in implementing environmental restoration and, and seeing what what blocks it and what facilitates it. Um, so uh, Congressman Graves talked about the need for um, basically you know innovation and efficiency and allowing a, creating a competition with the private sector where a government uh, if government could deliver projects faster and cheaper the, the the authority would be able to do those projects or they could they could even uh, outsource them to the Army Corps of Engineers as opposed to the private sector and they've, they've started creating that kind of competition which helps not just drive the private sector to deliver you know bids on time but also, allows public agencies to learn and to figure out how they can be efficient they're now in the process of working with the federal government to speed that up I don't but can you maybe talk about that a bit yeah let me um... there's a there's a bunch of things going on in Louisiana Um, uh, it's complicated but it's also simple so Louisiana has many sources of funding some of which are associated with Deepwater Horizon other funds are associated with um... uh, the restore act which is also indirectly related to Deepwater Horizon and then they have funds that come from the offshore uh, leasing of oil and gas. So there's a predictable fund, a Go Mesa fund is what it's called, um, that brings in funding. So they have these three different pots of money, as well as state, state funds, uh, you know, from taxpayers, that they could put in coastal restoration. So uh, three of the four of those things I just described involve federal agencies. So they have a need to work with federal agencies to get those funds freed up and put on the ground as fast as possible. Every day uh, they lose, what? 20 football fields of the land area of their state, right? So for Louisiana, there's there's extreme time pressure. They do not want to wait. So they're trying to work with federal agencies to get them to speed up the release of funding and permission for Louisiana to use large amounts of funding or commit, at least commit large amounts of funding to these projects that they uh, contract for where the money might not go out for five years or three years or eight years, uh, but they want to be able to commit the money today so that private investors will back the projects. If a private investor knows, okay, well I can deliver this and these are the outcomes, but you don't actually have money to pay me back, it's pretty unlikely you're gonna put, uh, put private money into those projects. So, so yes, that's one part of what Louisiana is trying to do. They're also just trying to get the structure of this program right. So under their, their pay for success law, I think it's the first in the country that is really a, a pay for success approach to, uh, to conservation. There are other laws that's focus on the social side in other states, but this is really the first environmental pay-for-success law. They're trying to get the regulations in place that allow them to create a bidding process to define the kinds of outcomes we've already talked about and to create some risk mitigation factors, like the insurance we talked about in California's case. How do they build uh, something that ensures that taxpayers are, are getting what they expect to get? Uh, so... Um, you know, it, it, Louisiana is right now talking about it as a clawback of taking back money they pay if the projects don't have long-term benefit. Uh, I think California's model of using insurance is probably a uh, much less terrifying way to frame uh, the, the the structure of the project than, than a clawback. Yeah. Clawback means if it doesn't work, you go back to the companies and say, give us money back. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the whole the whole structure of pay for success is designed to prevent taxpayers from paying for failure in the first right. place. Right. So two programs, let's say you take $10 million side by side, you do one half through grants, you pay it up front, all $10 million is gone within six months or another version where you don't pay the $10 million for five years Mm -hmm. and you've got, you know, 80% of the delivery has happened at that point. It's already an effective risk management strategy, but in places like Louisiana where it's new, it's a new approach to, you know, 200 years of traditional procurement, uh, folks still don't, you know, it's still something to get used to. Um, it still smells like a new car and you don't know if you like it. Right. So they're trying to figure out how to deal with that risk. And I think once you see a program run and start operating and you see how the the transactions work out, I think what you can expect is people get uh, less worried about that kind of risk.
0: Okay. And you mentioned the horizon money and I, uh, Rochelle had mentioned that and I meant to do some research on it. Um, I vaguely, I know that there was some money. Can you talk about that? Like the, there's money from from uh, BP, I guess, right? From the yeah.
1: damages. I think it'd be really interesting to look at what they're doing with that. Maybe you could talk a bit. Talk yeah. A bit so, about um, uh, so associated with uh, the the violations under the Clean Water Act, uh, EPA in, in the last administration, the rest of the, the Obama administration negotiated an amount that would come from BP and and its subsidiaries and go into something uh, under something called the Restore Act, go into a fund that is allocated back to all the states in the Gulf that were affected by the the oil spill to fix those damages. Some of that money goes to replace uh, human infrastructure, goes to replace ports and harbors or or improve those things to offset economic impacts. Other money goes for environmental restoration. So that's sort of one source of funding that's available. The other funding came through settlement uh, that Department of Justice and other agencies negotiated with BP. And that's a settlement for the, the criminal and other liabilities associated with violation of the Oil Pollution Act. Oil Pollution Act's goal and, and other statutes. Oil Pollution Act's goal is to leave the public whole. So if there's a, a, a damages associated with oil um, the law passed in the 70s or I'm not sure when the Oil Pollution Act was passed that it really says you know, you're trying to leave the public whole at the end of the process. So there's a lot of funding. Louisiana collectively and I don't know the exact amount but across all these funds has something like eight to ten billion dollars coming to it. This part of money is meant to fix the damage that was caused uh... To, to natural resources and so louisiana um, is looking for ways to get commitments to use that money for big projects uh... The, the complexity of why they need this kind of permission is that bp is basically paying the money into the fund on a schedule they pay a certain amount per year over fifteen years around fifteen years and so if louisiana wants to put a billion dollars in a project, they don't have that billion dollars on in the in the bank account right now So they need an agreement or they need a a framework at least with federal government to agree that they can they can pre-spend that money that BP has made a commitment to put into the fund in order to enable Louisiana to to put put in place bigger projects. The kinds of projects, just to give you an idea of the scale, that they're under this law uh, potentially um, working with the private sector to deliver are like $250 million projects. This is a lot of private capital to park into restoration. These are some of the most ambitious restoration projects in the entire country uh... and certainly the the fifty billion dollar restoration plan is is one of or if not the largest restoration plan ever proposed uh... uh... in in america Okay, great great um... anything else we should talk about on uh... louisiana or should we move on to nevada um, the, the, i guess the other thing i'd say about louisiana is it's it, you know it is an interesting place we all know there's a lot of oil and gas produced in louisiana uh... from its coast so oil pollution oil spills small ones i uh, have been Part of the state's history for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, um, they have a very effective private sector industry who has been working for years to deliver projects to to you know to leave the public hole after small oil spills, 20 gallons, 50 gallons, thousand gallons, and there's really an interesting marketplace and in a competitive space. Many companies operating, delivering projects all the time. It's the kind of uh, environmental marketplace that uh, people like me you know dream about existing for carbon or clean water across the country or biodiversity so that's exciting trying to trying to see Louisiana take off even further and then trying to get other states to learn from the way that uh, Louisiana has made environmental restoration and competitive delivery of restoration services as a, as a, as a good instead of, instead of a service we really have more to learn from from what Louisiana is doing. I mean, it's a you know people often talk about Louisiana is at the bottom of the list of 50 states and other places in the space of restoration and and innovative and effective restoration. Louisiana is really near the top of the country in terms of what other places can learn about in terms of doing restoration. Great, great. And then another one that surprised me, Nevada is uh, is on here, uh,
0: and the wildlife investment, the the sage grouse is what you talked about here. Why should we care
1: about the sage-grouse? I guess that's, it's just a crazy little bird, right? It, it yeah, you know, I, that's, a, that's always a hard question to answer. Sage-grouse is this, this funny bird that uh, the male has basically inflatable drums in his chest that, uh, that they do a dance and, and make noise with to attract females. Uh, it's a game bird that's important to hunters and you know recreationalists throughout the West. It's found across a you know vast swath of, of West, you know, Cal- from California over to, to Utah and Wyoming. The Obama administration put in place a plan that they negotiated as carefully as they could with states to balance what states wanted to do to try to save and protect sage-grouse with what the Federal Endangered Species Act and other federal laws require. So each of the states, including Nevada, developed their own strategy to try to help the sage-grouse. Uh, the report talked about Nevada, although it's a little bit different than other pay-for-success approaches, because what Nevada was trying to do, seeding a fund with state capital, is start producing a supply of sage-grouse, sagebrush habitat that's being managed to protect and enhance sage-grouse populations. So that when a mine or a road or a transmit power line transmission uh, corridor or an oil and gas field was being developed, any of those parties developing those pieces of infrastructure or, or energy supply could just cash out from this state supply uh, units of sage grouse habitat using a, a, a relatively rigorous methodology to measure habitat benefit that's been put in place. So it's just getting started. There's a lot of uncertainty uh, because of some of the Trump administration's actions around uh, what what will what demand will exist for sage grouse benefits. So Nevada created this uh, program called the Habitat Exchange. The exchange is like a supply of cereal on the shelf. You are going out there building units of sage grouse habitat that are measured using a, a, a third-party accounting system to figure out what what benefit exists. Uh, and when a uh, an entity needs, for whatever reason, regulatory reason, needs to to buy some of those units, they take it off the shelf. And that's that's something that's traditionally undervalued by regulators. Uh, regulators. Uh, Many of the people at Fish and Wildlife Service, they think it's price. They think it's cost that companies care most about. Um, They don't understand uncertainty and risk and time at all. And for companies, if you can just say, I know that if I have to deal with this, I can pay a certain amount to somebody who can tell me exactly what it is, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. I don't have to borrow any more money from the bank. I don't have uncertainty in my payback timeline. That's like the gold standard of what companies value, and what Nevada's doing, and what increasingly some of these other states have the potential to do in the West for sage grouse is be able to make uh, anything associated with sage grouse and sage grouse habitat into a routine thing. They can they can just get it done in the process of permitting, and it's not going to slow anybody down. And that's what a, that's what success really looks like in the space of wildlife conservation. We've talked a lot about water in wildlife conservation, the more that you could make that happen for rare species and endangered species, the more recoveries uh, and stable species we're going to have in this country.
0: When they implemented this, as I recall,
1: there weren't there, weren't there some quality issues? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, salt marshes are easy to create. Nature creates them all the time. Uh, all the time. And they're, uh, you know, pretty low species ecosystem. Sagebrush is a tougher habitat. It's a um, semi-desert environment in places like Nevada. A little bit wetter further east. Uh, plants grow really slowly. Um, it's more difficult to restore, and so there are certainly questions about: Can you really prove that you've created better habitat uh, for sage grouse and for the hundreds of other species that are found there? I think they've come up with a pretty rigorous methodology. They're in fact in Nevada. They either have just changed, just amended, or uh, are about to amend the methodology. Because they realized they probably built in some um, some buffers, some risk mitigation factors that are were not necessary. Uh, they were more more conservative, basically, in their approach to defining credits than they could have been. Um, but just to give you another example, um, again, perfect in the enemy of the good. In Great Britain, they uh, and and all the other EU countries, they have a new mandate associated with EU funding to have no net loss of biodiversity associated with EU funding. And so in England, they're trying to implement uh, basically a biodiversity offset strategy uh, that local developers can use, associated with roads and housing and other things. In Great Britain, they have just one system for for every ecosystem in the entire country to figure out credits and debits, how you swap impacts out for credits and you can allow projects to go forward. So imagine we had one system for Louisiana's salt marshes, Chesapeake Bay, and sage-grouse habitat in Nevada. We are a world ahead of that approach in the United States. It is is a relatively precise, relatively accurate system. And as I've already described in the case of their amending the system, it's iterative. They can can, uh, have a sale, they can have a project happen, and they can get better next year and then get better five years from now. You mentioned that
0: uh, there's some some question as to how much demand there will be. What what specific uh, issues under the Trump administration are you know, could is it is it the
1: Clean Water Act or no, the, no, the, the wetland mitigate the wetland? Yeah, so the, the um, yeah. Uh, Secretary Zinke, the, the head of the Department of Interior. Um, Brian
0: Zinke is gone, but his replacement, former oil lobbyist David Bernhardt, is continuing the policies that Tim is about to describe, albeit more quietly.
1: Uh, Secretary Zinke has taken some pretty extreme stances on mitigation, and and it's associated with some some weaker projects. Uh, But he's talked about uh, mitigation being both un-American and extortion. When you have a framework like that, statements from leadership like that, at the same time that they've also rescinded a secretarial order, uh, a departmental manual, a couple of handbooks, uh, uh, agencies' operational handbooks, and then announced plans to revise a whole suite of, of wildlife and other policies, they've created a lot of uncertainty. At the same time as that, they've also announced they're reopening the, the, the deal, the negotiated outcome on sage-grouse, and potentially allowing some amendments associated with sage-grouse habitat. So what all of that has done uh, is create uncertainty. They may come up with a framework that is predictable, that is fast, that's efficient, uh, It still has a wildlife standard and a development you know, focus, uh, it, how the department has indicated it wants to go. But right now, what they've mostly done is create uncertainty. And so when you have uncertainty, nobody knows how to invest in something like this. Uh, so that's that's affected you know the, the program
0: and how long will it take before the like are these impacts already being felt or will they like I don't really understand uh, the decisions that Zinke and these guys make now I mean they can't even implement them there will be court challenges and stuff I mean there's yeah
1: when will things start to change I mean the, the kind of companies that I talk to and work with um are companies that expect to be around for decades and they want they either have a national focus or an international a multinational focus Companies like that think about uh, investments in the long term, and uh, they are still dealing with the risk associated with sage-grouse and impacts on sage-grouse or other endangered species or water, and they are still making transactions associated with mitigation that seem to them to be reasonable ones uh, in terms of a risk management strategy associated with permitting, um, and that's, that's good to hear about. I'm sure there are other smaller companies that are trying to just get in and get out fast. Uh, and that's the kind of uncertainty that the administration has created. It will It's uncertain how long they will take um, uh, to put these policies in place, and probably it depends on how strongly they hear from the industry that the industry wants uh, a stable, defensible, legally defensible framework and the administration to, um, to focus on putting it in place as soon as they can. But whether they do that or not is anyone's guess.
0: Um, is there anything um, that we haven't touched on that you think we should? I do have a couple questions that are...
1: Tangential to this, but
0: I wanted to make sure I'm not leaving something really important unstated.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess um, let me just put some sort of broader frame around it, which is that um, this really represents an evolution in, at least in America, how we approach natural resource policy. Um, We've built this something like a $20 billion a year restoration economy with hundreds of private companies that do. Uh, Restoration—the companies that look more like a construction company, and companies that have substantial scientific expertise and provide specialized services and monitoring and project design—that's really exciting if you care about conservation. And the, now that we have that kind of capacity, now that we have some places where regulation uh, has been implemented so well that businesses know how to deal with it, uh, conservationists have stopped paying attention to it because it works we really need to figure out how to replicate that more often and create a stable and growing space because a lot of what we need in terms of keeping natural resources in place in this country are not just focused on preservation they're focused on restoring systems someplace like houston texas right the 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 floods and the amazing damage created by horrific damage created by the hurricane Uh, how do we go about restoring some natural infrastructure in houston that creates green space open space public trails but also stores water um, New York City, how do you defend New York City, the lower end of Manhattan from climate change, from sea level rise? Uh, how do you fix a uh, connected forest ecosystem in the northern Rockies forests and and other habitats to allow grizzly bears and, and caribou and elk to, to have freedom to roam? In all of those places we need effective restoration, that works side by side with economic prosperity and what we're starting to see is that's possible when we treat the environment in a way where you define an outcome, you buy that outcome, and you incentivize government and private sector to work together to deliver it. So it's a, you know, it's P3s for nature really, uh, are what what we'll see more of in the future, and what we need stable policy to, to deliver. I was
0: expecting when I came to this event to the Urba conference, people would be really worried about Trump's rollbacks. Almost everybody, except for Dave Ross, was saying he'll be gone in a couple of years. They were more worried about. The backlash, you know, the blue wave coming. It was kind of interesting because even though everybody I spoke to, most of them, they're environmentalists. They're worried about, you know, the the attitude was, man, it took us so long to get this kind of middle ground where we've got, you've got markets doing, you know, you don't you don't have the business running rampant, you don't have, or or as uh, Graves put it, you know, pouring too much concrete and not getting in in that, and you know, he was worried about going too environmental. I think people. At this conference, we're more worried about markets being thrown out and going back to command and control. They're worried about this backlash coming. Um, do you see that as a legitimate fear that we might go too far? I mean, it's that 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 the next with the blue wave comes, you're going to get people who are so distrusting of the private sector because of what the Republicans are doing that they're just going to think it's all a scam and toss it out. Is that?
1: Yeah, I I think I am worried about the backlash. I mean, if you think about um, really it started, the ideas that led to these markets in at least US federal government started with Carter, were continued by Reagan, were perpetuated by uh, George Herbert Walker Bush with no net loss of wetlands, were continued by Clinton, strengthened by uh, George uh, W. Bush with his Clean Water Act rule and continued and, and expanded under Obama with mitigation policies. All that's happened without a lot of controversy or a lot of deep partisan rancor and what I'm worried about now is that it's it potentially has become partisan as opposed to something that's it's nonpartisan and evolving I and mean, clean water act is a great example clean water act amendments that allowed a cap-and-trade system associated with with uh, uh, you know smokestack pollution not particularly controversial there done and done in a bipartisan way by the first Bush administration when we start talking about cap-and-trade uh, for you know climate in the in the Obama administration it became deeply divisive Um, And so I am worried about that and the backlash because uh, uh, it's really become, and I think the Trump administration undervalues this, these policies have become a way to say yes with a lot less controversy for local communities and states and, and towns to say yes to development projects that advance our economy side by side with environmental wins if you take away the policy framework that allows people to accept the trade-offs, to, the, to minimize the trade-offs and to accept the trade-offs that do occur, you create confrontational, uh, a confrontational future where there's a lot less reason for people, local communities and others to like a project that's going to cause a lot of impacts to them and few benefits, environmental benefits. Um, and you, you, you turn this space, which has, been, which, is, which has allowed negotiated outcomes, into a very adversarial process. And that's what I'm worried we lose if the Trump administration sort of throws the you know the babies out with the bathwater uh, in the case of all these mitigation and market-based policies. Um, I would have expected you know one of the the um, uh, executive actions that the Trump administration one of the very first ones that overturned was a memorandum on private investment and mitigation. And I think the ideal would have been for them to rescind and put in place their own one that talked about how to expand private investment. Um, Trump, not Trump himself. But Trump's uh, an environmental advisor to the Trump Organization, a guy named Ed Russo, has written a book called Trump, an Environmental Hero. And in that book, he talks about his years and years and years of working directly with, with the now president on projects like golf courses. And that their goal was always to achieve a significant net environmental gain to go beyond what the regulations required and leave the environment better off in places where they were putting in place these projects. He understood, apparently, in the narrative in this book, he understood why that is a is a is an asset and a benefit for a company that wants to be around for a long time, and so imagining how, you know, had he been in charge of anything, he would have put in place. And assuming he he spoke for for then you know developer Trump, uh, talked about how do you expand private investment, how do you create sort of certainty and brand value for businesses, you know that would have been a much happier outcome than just simply rescinding it and uh, and talking about you know no-stop-ahead no uh, energy development and developments of all kinds. So I, d- I do hope they come up with some framework and they realize that businesses want certainty so that there isn't the backlash that I that uh, uh, I can see happening right now.
0: That's Tim Mayle of the Environmental Policy Innovation Center discussing his 2017 report, Nature, Paid on Delivery, which is also the title of today's show. I hope you like what you've heard, and if you do, then please consider helping me create more episodes by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com or at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.